Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Today we are going to take on an important topic, coping with the emotions of guilt and anger after the loss of a loved one. If you're listening to this show, I assume that some of you are ready to explore your feelings of guilt and anger and that others of you might want even to consider the idea of giving up your excess guilt and anger. And I'm not asking you to. We have been there and know that guilt and especially anger may be what is currently getting you through the day, and deep down you may be dealing with the fear that on the other side of guilt and anger may be depression and despair. Take heart and remember that feelings are ruled by the mind and that there is over time the option of peace and tranquility. We are here today to help you to consider the idea of moving from anger and guilt into that peace and tranquility. Negative feelings over time can impede your immune system and cause you unnecessary hardship. So join us today in exploring and mining those unnecessary triggers to feelings of anger and guilt. Identifying and coping with excessive anger and guilt are necessary steps in healing from traumatic loss. Anger and guilt are universal feelings that we all have on a fairly regular basis. In fact, they're normal responses and are part of what makes us human and even humane. While anger is learned early and comes naturally, as seen with babies and toddlers when they're deprived of food or a toy, guilt is a bit more advanced. Guilt requires that we have an understanding, or in many cases a belief, that in some way we may have had some responsibility for the negative outcomes in our life. Oftentimes when we are angry, if we look deeply, the anger is really focused at ourselves. If we hadn't let our child drive in the rain, or if we had gone to the doctor sooner, our loved one may have not have died. So anger and guilt for the bereaved can really be intertwined. It is my belief that anger and guilt can also be related to a need to again feel that our world is safe. If I can blame someone else or feel that I have done something differently that would have changed the outcome, could have changed the outcome. In other words, I can control my world and the world will be safer for me and my family. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that life happens, that even with your best intentions and the best doctors and the safest car, you cannot keep bad things from happening. Harboring anger and guilt can delay your grief and stop you from being the happy person that you are meant to be. Please join us on our show today to discuss coping with anger and guilt after the loss of a child or any loved one. My guest today is Dr. Bob Bauer, psychologist, certified death educator. Bob teaches at Highline Community College in in Des Moines, Washington. He is an 18-year-old, but he wishes they were, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's an 18-year member of the advisory committee of the Kings County chapter of the Compassionate Friends. Bob has given more than 350 workshops on coping with grief and loss. He's a trainer for the Washington State Youth Suicide Prevention Program and is co-author of A Guide for Bereaved Survivor, A Guide to Understanding Guilt During Bereavement and Understanding Anger During Bereavement, Death Turns Ali's Family Upside Down, which is a child's book on death, and Coping with Traumatic Loss, Homicide, and After Suicide. 
Well, Bob, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate uh, you coming on this morning. I know you've been in Africa. Yes. And it's great to have you on. So uh, today we're going to talk about guilt and anger. And I want to ask you, Bob, how did you get into the area of grief and loss? Um, years ago, well, more than 30 years ago, my father um, at age 52 is one of those workaholics. Probably the listeners know um, someone that I'm uh, someone like I'm talking about because he never had time to be sick and one day he was feeling kind of under the weather, didn't go to work and decided to go to the bank and had a massive stroke and almost died. And uh, so here I was teaching psychology classes and my mother saying to me, um, you know, in tears, uh, I want you to see about your father um, setting up a funeral for your father. Oh, and I'm, I'm realizing, oh my God, I, even though I had a master's degree back then in psychology, I, I didn't know anything about grief and loss and funerals, and so then, uh, fortunately, he survived and um, lived another 29 years, uh-huh. and uh, then my then uh, a year after that, in 1976, I was asked to create a new class, so I said I'd like to teach a class on death, and been doing that for 29 years now. So you just decided to go right into the right into it when your when your dad had this problem, yeah. and and 29 years ago it was quite a thing to go in, wasn't it? There yeah, wasn't got, much yeah. going on. No, there wasn't. And you've certainly uh, contributed a lot to the field. I know uh, you've done a lot for Compassionate Friends, and your workshops are wonderful, and people really enjoy them. Um, what do you see as being the major issues related to loss in general for people? Well, I, I think one of the big ones is education that, um, you know, given that I, I think I was no exception, that even though I knew a lot about about people and human behavior, I, I think we don't we're not taught about grief and loss. I mean, you go all the way through... Uh, you know your youth years and high school and even college you, you you won't hear the word grief loss anger guilt those kinds of tough issues that come up when someone dies and so i think education is certainly a, an important one and and, and, and it's also ready. something to be avoided too i mean who wants to talk about uh, negative depressing things that go on that you don't want to face up to Absolutely. When I tell people, they they say, "Well, you're a college instructor. What do you teach?" And I say, oh, "I teach a course on death." And then they they say. Oh, you're talking about deaf people are hard of hearing? I said, no, 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 deaf. And then, you know, they have this look on their face. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's not what people want to deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know. I tell people I'm doing an Internet radio show, and they're like, wow, that's great. What's it on? <laughs> exactly. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, so talk about anger uh, and guilt. We were uh, talking about that as being the topics of the show today, and I know you have taught... Um, uh, at Compassionate Friends, a wonderful seminar over the years on anger and guilt. In fact, I did it for you last year when you That's were in right. Africa. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, what about anger? What do you think about it? Well, um, I like a quote. One of my favorite authors is uh, a woman named Therese Rando, who, uh, as you know, writes books that are 250, 350 pages, not, not so much for people who are going through grief unless people really want to devour a book, but um, for professionals to understand what's going on. And the best quote I ever heard was from her is that anger is um, a reaction to being deprived of something desired. Mm-hmm. And, and when I teach my class, for example, in a couple hours today, I'll be teaching my death class. This is the first day of the quarter for them, so they're all excited and everything. And, uh-huh. and uh, one of the things I say to them is, you know, just uh, imagine a baby uh, uh, drinking a bottle and uh, a one-year-old, and you go up and snatch the bottle away, and that kid's going to be upset, and that's a, and and that's 
what's important to understand is that anger is a natural reaction. Right. And I, uh, I think of it somewhat as throwing a tantrum after you've lost um, a family member and particularly myself losing a child. Um, I literally, I think, threw a tantrum for the first while, you know, screaming, yelling, you know, you falling on the floor or whatever. I mean, you literally, because we've been taught that if you want something badly enough, you can get it yeah. from early on. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's that protest, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. It's And I, I, I uh, years ago when I was co-authoring the book with um, Dr. Gary Hankins and his, and his wife Carol, you know, we were looking at um, ways to really emphasize anger, and so I came up with a little acronym that that A stands for uh, a natural, um, uh, genuine emotional reaction. You take each of those words, and it spells anger. And I like the word, uh-huh. you know, natural and genuine, because it comes right. back to us that this is normal. But one of the things I, I got from Dr. Hankins, and and something that I say when I give the workshop on anger is. That it's okay, and I really want the listeners to get this, that it's okay to be angry, but it's what you do with it. Uh-huh. There are all kinds of ways that we know are unhealthy in terms of anger, but, but anger is a natural reaction, and quite often people don't want us to be angry. I mean, it's scary to watch someone be angry, right? but it's, it's what you do with it. Yes, um, I would agree with you somewhat, but would you say that some of our listeners are uh, uh, carrying it over years? I actually have an email here from a woman named Brenda uh, from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and Brenda says, send me an email and said, I noticed you were going to have Dr. Bob Bauer on. I've uh, been at some of his seminars. Uh, five years ago, my daughter died um, with mal- from malpractice. We went after the doctor and tried to stop him from practicing and sued him. Uh, he was censured by the medical society, but uh, he did not lose his license. It's been five years, and I'm really, really angry still, and I'm feeling that it's not good for me. Can you help me? Wow, that's a great one. Well, number one, I think it's important to look at the at, at where anger cross because, you know, people want to know where, where does it cross an unhealthy um, uh, threshold. And I think certainly one and, and uh, the you mentioned it earlier, was that when people uh, end up hurting themselves or another person, that you know that's that's important um, to realize that you've gone beyond. And quite often, people feel, as you talked about earlier, anger itself that it's somehow okay to beat myself up. But um, but you know, I I like to give as well as I do when I talk about guilt, the best friend example. That if your best friend were doing had done the same sort of things, would you, you know, would you beat your best friend up? And for many people, they say, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, the question becomes, can you be as gentle with yourself as you would your best friend? And yes, second, that's a great way to put it, yeah. And second, what uh, with respect to Brenda, um, you know, the, the question is, uh, at what point does anger become a, a problem in, in one's life and it and the answer is when it begins to disrupt your their lifestyle when it interferes with what some of the listeners may know this term when it interferes with your activities of daily living mm-hmm. then it's gone beyond you know so you're angry at on the freeway you're angry at your boss you're angry at your family and it's just just spilling over and what you know I I think compassionate friends is a wonderful organization and sometimes and more often people when they go to uh, to support groups, they can talk about it. They can hear someone across the room speak words that indicate that they're feeling some of the same anger in it, and it's really a, quite a powerful way to get that out. Right. But if, 
Well, well, when I hear Brenda say that um, I'm really angry, help me, she is, uh, I think, at the point where she's getting ready to give it up. We do have to get to the point where we are willing to do that. Where oh, absolutely. We feel that it's more harmful on us to have, because anger and rage do give you a certain feeling of power. Yes. Those adrenaline hits, those kinds of things. And uh, you may, Brenda sounds like she's ready to give it up. And I think, Brenda, you need to know that there is some peace on the other side. It's not just depression. But I think Bob made a good point that she may want, Brenda may want to go to group yeah. or join other people, get some support, because it can be a scary thing giving up feelings that you've had for five years. Yeah, absolutely. And hate uh, towards another person. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, I, uh, there have been times when I've given the anger workshop and, um, a lot of dads show up to the, to the workshop and mm-hmm. it's very powerful when they come up to me afterwards and shake my hand and thank me for holding up a mirror to them and, and a couple dads said to me at, workshops over the years, they said, you know, Bob, for me as as a dad, as a man, it's easier for me to be angry than it is sad. Right, exactly. Uh, That's sad and sadness on the other side. But sometimes you have to move through that into into other areas. So uh, we want to take your hand and and suggest that you might be getting ready to do that. Um, uh, If you're thinking about that, you might want to get Dr. Brower's book. It's a wonderful book called Understanding Anger During Bereavement. And how would they get that? Uh, they can email me at um, B, the letter B, and then an underscore, and then K, and then my name, B-A-U-G-H-E-R, at yahoo.com. Great. And if you don't, uh, if you didn't get that down, you can also email me through healingthegrievingheart.org, and I will send you um, a link for Bob. But it's a great book, and it's not that long, and uh, and it's just got some great ideas about how you can deal with your anger. Let's talk a little bit about guilt now. How do you see guilt? Well, um, I you know I like what you said earlier that um, you know in in our life we often feel like we have control over what happens, and then and then a child dies, and and we realize that we don't have a lot of control, and so we we look and we try to make sense out of what really is in most cases a senseless situation and and certainly the death of a child you know goes way off the charts in terms of of senseless well we're also supposed to be able to take care of our children exactly i have a quote that i i thought was helpful um uh by uh, george kelly who's a psychologist he says the guilt is a sense of having lost one's core role structure in other words we feel guilty when we behave in ways inconsistent with our sense of who we are and so for a parent, you know, you're right. A parent, our job is to protect our children. Our job is to have some control over our lives and their lives. And when, and when you know, the death occurs, um, it, it challenges our, our whole thinking. Right. I, and I also think that there's another word that we um, haven't uh, met here with anger, guilt. There's also shame. Yeah. A tremendous amount of shame for a parent. Yeah, exactly. That, uh, you know, that they would lose, quote, their child. Well, and the um, and when parents talk about uh, running into old friends or other people and them asking about how their children are, and you know they see the look on that other person's face when they say, "My child died," and, and so they you know suddenly feel, you know, again responsible. Why, you know, what kind of parent am I? And and certainly they may pick up or perceive facial expressions from other people, and that that sense of shame may may settle over them. Mm-hmm. Can I talk for a little bit about some guilt statements that might help the listeners identify when they're feeling guilty? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, so when people say things like, you know, if only, or why didn't I, 
or I should have, or I shouldn't have, or uh, I'm not worthy of, or just I feel guilty. You know, those are indications that that there's some guilt going on in this person's life. Mm -hmm. And I think the word should have is is an important one because when you really think about that term, should have, you can never should have. I always say to my students, you know, um, how many of you were in this room last night at 6 o'clock? And they all stare at me like, what is he talking about? And then I say, well, you should have been here. And they kind of chuckle. And I say, well, you know, can you do anything about that? And they say, no. And I said, well, you can never should have. Now, I want to caution the listeners. The next time you're in an argument with someone and if someone says that you should have done something, at that moment you may not want to say, well, I heard on the radio that you can never should have. You know, you're, you're probably not going to win the argument at that point. But really, that's a lot of what guilt is, is that yeah. I should have done this Shitting and that. Shitting yourself, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So so we're, what we're saying to our listeners is watch yourself. You were talking yeah. about holding up a mirror. Yes. Look, when are you saying that to yourself? Yeah, exactly, there and catching a, yourself. Right. There was a wonderful old book years ago. I'm a tennis player, and it was it's called The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm. And The Inner Game of Tennis said one of his main things was you shouldn't say anything on the tennis court to yourself that you wouldn't say to your partner. That's great. That's <laughs> great. I really and again, I, I that goes back to the to the best friend the best friend thing um, is you know how can you treat yourself well? Let me talk for a little bit about some types of guilt that might help the listeners identify with what's going on. Great. One is that you mentioned earlier is death causation guilt. That is the belief that I did something that directly, indirectly, somehow contributed to my child's death. And that, you know, that sense that people carry around with them, I think, has or a I lot to do. Or I didn't do something. That's right. I, or I failed to do something. I, I was giving a uh, workshop at the Compassionate Friends Conference a few years ago, and there were 65 parents in the, in the group, and a woman raised her hand as soon as I said death causation guilt, and she said, she said yes, I have an example of that. My son uh, died in an auto accident. He was uh, 16 years old, and and he was just walking out the door and turned to me and said, you know, the last thing I saw of him, he said, uh, goodbye, Mom. And I said, oh, goodbye. And he left and he got on the freeway and a truck hit his car and, and killed him. And, and she said, I should have said, be careful. <laughs> Isn't that incredible how yeah. small we can get with that? I, when I was working at University of Rochester Strong Hospital, there was a little girl whose father had died, and she said to me, you know what, if I hadn't asked my daddy to help me with my homework, he wouldn't have been in the car at the time that the truck crossed the intersection. Exactly. Exactly. And so, again, that's our brain, you know, that's our brain trying to make sense out of this senseless, uh, this senseless situation, and, and so we have that. Uh, another one and related to parents is role failure guilt, um, that I wasn't a good enough mother, I wasn't a good enough father, and if only I had been, you know, more vigilant and better, and, and of course, I think in many cases, pe- people are saying, if only I had been psychic and known ahead of time that this was going to happen, then I would, and, you know, we, uh, again, beat ourselves up for We see um, that a lot with families where uh, the family member has died by suicide. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they take on that role, and one of the things that uh, we know as therapists is that you cannot stop people from... Uh, in the end, from doing what they do. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard one. And, and I, you know, I teach this suicide intervention class, and one of the things I say is, you know, you're learning all these skills, which you now know more about suicide intervention than probably 98% of most people, and yet despite all your best efforts at times, you may stop a person one time, but it could be that a week later, a year later, that they, that they still may take their lives, and, and that's a tough one. 
We always have to remember that we did the best we could at the time. Yes, I have a friend who investigates uh, suicides for King County here, and so he's on the scene just after a, you know, and a suicide has occurred, and he's standing there with the family members, and he asked, he has to ask them, "What were you doing?" You know, at the time, where were you? Because he needs to investigate, and of course, immediately the person's you know, feeling defensive and guilty, and so on. And he said, "He said, is that what you normally do?" And they said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, it then sounds like you were doing what you were." Doing at the time, and that you know, you know, how could you have known, um, or, or you know, would you have gotten off work at that time? Another one is unmentionable guilt, and I, I think this unmentionable guilt is a huge one because I want to appeal to the listeners that if you have some type of guilt inside of you at this point that you've not really been comfortable in sharing, that I, I think it's important you decide, you know, a if you're going to share it, and b to pick a safe person that you're going to say it to, because people often will relate some action in the past, this is uh, overlapping with what's called moral guilt as well, that I, I was this terrible person and this is why my child died or, or I thought of this or failed to do this and these thoughts or actions somehow or failure to, to think and act resulted in my child's death, but I can't tell anybody. And right. I'm asking you to get that out of your head and sit down with a safe person and say there's something I need to say to you. And... Yeah. Rather than it rolling round and round, it, get it it's out. amazing. Um, I, I think of that as being unresolved loss. And when I used to see that a lot was when I worked in the hospital and people. I worked on uh, consulted to a surgical service, and I would see people who had automobile accidents or other things happen in the hospital. And when they got medicated and they're, you know, they were kind of down, all this unresolved grief would come out. These things that they'd never told anybody about wow. past losses, wow. and uh, it, it was a pretty amazing, yeah. uh, amazing thing. And that's, happen. and that's the beauty of, uh, of support groups, and especially with uh, compassionate friends and being able to sit in a group that's safe with a facilitator and, and other folks that have been through somewhat similar situations and to be able to, to you know, find by, a place to yeah. sit. And by the way, you can go 10 years later to a compassionate friends group. Yes, I, I tell my students, it. it doesn't matter how long. Yeah, you can be 10, 20 years later, and you walk into a compassionate friends group and say, I'm here and my child died 10 years ago, they will not blink. They will, you know, uh, gesture to a chair and say, welcome, and sit down. Right, That's and you beauty. don't have to stay forever. If you want to go tell that story um, or just get to know the group and uh, see where you are, you can do that. Yeah, exactly. So what so, about unresolved uh, oh, do you uh, Did you finish your... Oh, i got a couple more. Oh, good. Do uh, certainly a, bi- a big one that everyone knows is survivor guilt. You know, I went the, one of the first talks I gave to compassionate friends in 1987 was... Uh, a man came up to me afterwards. He was like 75 years old, and his 50-year-old son had died. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, my son was 50 when he, when he died, and, you know, that's wrong. No parent should survive their child. And so just existing every day, day after day, parents feel, you know, this incredible survivor guilt. Right. And, and the other people we see it a lot with their siblings. Yeah. A yeah. lot of survival guilt with siblings. You know, I should have been in the car. Yeah. You know, it should have been me. Yeah, it should have been me. They were yeah. the good one. Yeah. You know, why Huge am I one. here? Yes, a, trem- a tremendous amount of survival guilt uh, because sometimes uh, the the child who died gets glorified a bit. Yes, and, true. And so the other one's feeling um, like I'm unworthy, and they were the best. A good Only example. Die young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A good example of that, if the listeners haven't seen it, it's a difficult movie to watch, but it's still a classic. Is Ordinary People, absolutely, in which um, the sibling experiences significant survivor guilt. Absolutely. And a, a couple others I'll, I'll do briefly. One is grief guilt. And I wrote an article years ago for Breathe It Magazine that said, what if I grieved perfectly? 
which, you know, the whole idea that, you know, we have to grieve right. And I think that goes back to the education thing that you and I talked about earlier, Gloria, the, the idea that we, we don't know what our grief is like. And you're going to grieve how you're going to grieve. And the idea that there's some perfect or right way of grieving is just that. It's, you know, it's not. And it's also, however we're going to do it. Yeah, and also you may, people may hold on to some things longer. Some people may hold on to anger longer. Some yeah. people may hold on um, to guilt longer. And uh, when you recognize it, then is the time. That's when you're saying, oh, I may, I see it. I may want to be able to do something with it. Yeah, exactly. And it may be years. It yep. may be after you've had an experience similar to what happened years before. And, uh, and you're ready to say, okay, there it is, and, and maybe it's time that I gave it up. Yeah. Or yeah. dealt with it. And one last one I want to mention is uh, I call moving on guilt. And uh, I'm sure any listener can identify with the fact the first time that they laughed after the loved one died. And Absolutely. This, this sudden, oh my God, what, you know, I'm forgetting my loved one. What's wrong with me? And, and, and the point is that I think the important issue in dealing with our own grief is how do we then you know, let go of some of that grief and still hang on to the memory of our loved one and keep them in our heart. And, and I think there's this tug of war going on that if I let go of my guilt, let go of my anger, let go of my grief, I'm letting go of my loved one. And, and, and that's, you know, that's where it takes some untangling that, that, you know, a compassionate friends, counseling, talking to a friend or whatever, getting it out of your head and talking about it can help out. It, yeah, one of the things that we do when we work with the, I work with 9-11 families, firemen families, and one of the major things where the father was killed in 9-11, and one of the major things we do for them, it sounds very strange, but we give them permission to have family fun time. Yes, permission. And, and we make it as part of their assignment. Excellent, yeah. So I think I've said on this show before that all you listeners out there, I, Bob and I would like to tell you to have some family fun time and give it as an assignment. Yes. It can be short. It can just be getting an ice cream cone. Yes. Walking around the block. We're not asking you to do a lot. We're just asking you to take a moment out of peace. Yes. And, uh, and your loved one would want you to do that. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean you're forgetting them. No. In fact, uh, we've said before that memories get very strong later on because you can enjoy them so much. Yeah. yeah exactly. So uh, if you had a piece of advice that you could give a brief person after the first year, what would it be during the first year? I think um, permit yourself to grieve however you're going to grieve. You know, we've talked about guilt and anger today, and, you know, sometimes people hear this and then they feel guilty for feeling guilty or guilty for feeling angry. You're going to feel whatever you're going to feel. But it's important then to find ways to take care of yourself and be good to yourself. And um, that may be, you know, going to a group, reading books, listening to, you know, um, shows like like you have on here, Gloria. And um, but realizing that you're kind of a zombie going through this step by step, and um, that you know the important thing is to take it as we all hear that cliche, one day at a time. Absolutely. Are there any areas that you feel we've missed or comments that you'd like to make? Sure. I, I want to give some suggestions for coping with anger and then a couple for um, with guilt. There's certainly much more to this, but just some things for the listeners to, to consider. One is uh, for anger, to identify your anger behaviors, What you know, to actually sit down and write down, and, and maybe if the listeners have a piece of paper right now, they can do this, take out... Um, some paper and pen and, and write down what, when I'm angry, what words come out, either um, out of my mouth or into my thoughts that indicate anger. 
and just to kind of get them out so that when you see them, you go, oh, there it is, I'm angry. And what actions do you exhibit? You might might want to ask the people you live with. They'll probably give you some, you know, uh, great examples of uh, what actions you indicate um, that that show your anger. Second, to identify, and I teach a class in human relations, and I say to my students, if you're going to change a behavior, one of the important things to do is not only define it, but come up with reasons why you absolutely must change your behavior. And so in this case, reasons why I must find ways to at least reduce my anger. Maybe I don't want to let go of it entirely, but what can I, you know, and all the reasons, all the good things that will come from it, all the negative things that will come from continuing with this anger. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is the time uh, when our audience is ready to do this. I wouldn't say that they're probably going to be ready to do this in the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. the first year. And yeah, the second I, year, I think, too. I think we're coming up on the third year. They might be start ready to do this. Yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, sometimes trying to, you know, you get people at six months and try to say, well, come on, you need to let go of it and so on. Well, you know, they'll look at you like you're crazy because that's not where they are yet. Mm-hmm. And then uh, list some of your targets of anger. They're, you know, who, who are the people that you're more likely to take it out on? And then, um, you know, uh, how, how can you find ways to, um, you know, communicate more effectively with people? Um, you know, you know that, that? that target of anger thing is, is important early on. Yeah. Because in the first couple of years, if you're targeting and getting angry at family members, or particularly couples, married couples, yes, if one of the spouses is is really angry at the other one, and and that can happen very easily, you know, why didn't you wake me, or why didn't you tell me, or why did you let them take the car, or you know, uh, why didn't you let me see the body at the hospital? Exactly. You know, I, there are really anger anger issues that are not functional early on too. Yeah, I think the um, you you did one of my workshops last last year when I was in Africa on expectations and how important they are. And I invite listeners to sit down with the person that you're having most problems with in your life and write down all of the expectations that you have for this person, all that you wish they would do, hope they would do, would like them to do, and whether they're unrealistic or not, and write them all down and then go back through them and say to yourself, which ones do I have some degree of control over? And uh, and and therefore, is there something that I can do about some of these? And the other ones, then your job is, as we all know, to work on you know letting some of that go. You know, the whole serenity prayer that everyone knows about. So that's those are. What tell us the serenity prayer? Yes, everybody knows that. I'm not sure oh, they do. <laughs> okay. Well, ba- basically, to be able to sort out what I have control over and channel your energy into that, and what I don't have control over, and find ways to begin to let go of that. And sometimes the letting go process is, is more difficult than the channeling. Back back to Brenda's example, if she were a client, if she were a client of mine who came in for counseling, I would say to her, Brenda, what would it take for you to begin to let go of some of this anger? Mm-hmm. Help her identify it, and then ask her uh, what it would take for her to yes. let go. Yes, exactly. You know that's pretty simple when you think about it. I mean, yeah. our audience can just say, you know the words that you've just said to themselves yeah. and what would it take to let go. And and uh, I think one of the issues is people sometimes are not ready to let go. When I taught your, your uh, class at Compassionate Friends, I was very interested that there were people who came there because the title was anger mm. and they just wanted to be with anger. Yes. They were yes. not ready to give it up. They no. wanted to talk about anger. And I think we're going to have people on our, listening to our show today 
who archive in and they see the topic is going to be anger and they want to hear what we have to say about it. Yeah. But they want to be with anger. And you know what? If you're out there and you want to be with anger, great. But I would say to you, if you are drawn to it, it's because you're thinking about giving it up. You've recognized it. That's the first step. Great. The next step is letting go. And Bob's got such great ideas for doing that. Yeah. And, again, I would suggest that you get his book, Understanding Anger During Bereavement, if you're interested in letting go because uh, it's a great book with a lot of great ideas in it, and you can get it through. You want to give us your website again? Okay. Again, one more time. B, like in boy, and then an underscore, and then K, and then Bauer, B-A-U-G-H-E-R, at yahoo.com. Great. And if you email him, you might even get some uh, tips on giving up your anger for free, right? (laughs) Yeah, for free. For free. (laughs) So it's a, a great thing to do. So we were talking uh, before the break about if you had one year to give a piece of advice, what would it be? And what if you had somebody three or four years uh, into uh, after a loss? What would your, be, your advice be regarding anger and guilt? Uh, one, I would make sure that they've educated themselves about uh, issues related to anger and guilt and that if, if they feel that they've started to be, began to move on a little bit, then I would ask them, you know, what might be a healthy way that you can channel some of this anger. We all know about mothers uh, against drunk driving. We, we all, you know, every person out there who's been a, 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 a compassionate friends group facilitator or chapter leader, you know, bless you because what you've done is you've gotten to a point in your life where you're ready to take some of that grief and that energy and channel it into helping other people. And I think we all know how, you know, how good that feels. Service is really something, isn't it? It is. It is. It, it's great. And and sometimes sitting down and writing a letter to the person who died or writing a letter to, um, you know, the person that you're angry at and not mailing that letter. I, I, I'm always hesitant on, you know, for people who sit down in an email, write a letter and then hit return and then, oh, my God, I can't retrieve that. Aren't back. we all so, sorry for some yeah. of the emails we've written? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, um, someone else, a Pat Loader, had a great suggestion, too. Um, and she's the uh, executive director of Compassionate Friends. We were talking about writing a letter, and she has people write one back from the dead person. Yeah. You write to them, and they write back to you. Yeah, yeah, great. Which is kind of a, a, a lovely thing to do. Yes, yeah, and, you know, what they would say to you. And uh, let me give you one more, for, um, especially for guilt, and I do this in my workshop. Um, you know, I want you to think about the person who's died, and, I, and in a moment I want you to imagine them standing in front of you, and for 10 seconds... They're going to say something to you about all the guilt and all the anger that you've been carrying this, up to this point. And so then I have, you know, the, the, in this case, I have parents in front of me and say, I want you to imagine your child standing there, and I'm going to be, be silent for 10 seconds, and I just mm-hmm. want you to listen to what your child is going to say to you. And, and I just quiet. did that, and you know what I got? What? Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Is your son talking to you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe yeah. give me a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I've had parents come up to me or raise their hand in the workshop and say, you know, a mother whose 20-year-old son had died, and, he, and she said, I heard my son. I actually heard his words in my brain saying, Mom, chill out. You know? <laughs> right. um, or Dad saying, you know, my daughter saying, Dad, you know, I know you love me, and it's not your fault. And right. it, and it's very powerful to, you know, go back to that person and say, what you know? What would they be saying to me not right now about all this guilt and anger that I've been feeling? Yeah, Darcy Sims um, says something which I think is really wonderful, which is uh, people are upset, um, angry, or guilty that they didn't get to say goodbye. 
And she said, well, what if you had your child standing there before you? Would you say goodbye? No, you'd say, I love you. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love Dorothy. She's great. Great, great, great. Uh, I think that's a good comment. Well, could you suggest, are there any uh, special resources that you'd suggest for people who are feeling angry or guilty? Compassionate friends we talked about. Yes. Yes, well, and most, most all communities have grief support groups that, you know, and, and they have to be a little cautious to make sure that it's a, you know, it's a legitimate one and one that, um, and one that's going to help you move on, um, and understand what's going on with your guilt. Sometimes bereaved parents have reported walking into a general bereavement group and not seeing another bereaved parent in there and that was, you know, that was difficult for them or someone who's experienced a suicide and no one else has experienced a suicide. So you may want to, you know, tailor uh, where you're heading on that and really um, find the right group that's helpful for you. But there are books out there. There are websites. There are, you know, in this case, your radio, your radio show. Um, and, you know, finding ways to gather that information so that you can you can get a mirror held up to you and look at your own grief and say, you know, what, what's going on with me and, you know, what are some ways that I can find, you know, find a way to be more healthy as I'm coping with my grief and loss. Uh, I wondered if there were some things that you would like to um Talk to us about one of the things that I'd like to talk about before the show ends is bereavement as a career, um, because I know that there are some people who are interested after the death of a child of moving into this area, or uh, or another family member, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Good. And you mean bereavement um, work as as a career, not not bereavement itself. <laughs> not bereavement. Yes, let's talk about bereavement as a career. I, I, in fact, I think that might be a good idea to mention that because. Some of the people have said on the show before that that they think it's important not to identify yourself as a bereaved person for the rest of your life. Do you have a thought about that? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, parents always come up with, you know, years later when someone they meet someone and how many children do you have? And, you know, each parent has, has to, I think, practice a little bit on how they're going to do that. And um, But, you know, bereavement is is something that we all experience and, and, you know, heaven knows that it could be today that, you know, another loss is going to occur, but but I I think we have to ask ourselves what's important in my life right now, and there and I am alive, and my loved one would want me to be living and and doing things and and, and finding ways to be happy. So um, and the fact is, you can give up a lot of your fears. The worst has happened, and you go on to do amazing and wonderful things, yeah. as many of our guests have. David Daniels, a psychiatrist that was on, made a point, and he said that death. And uh, life go together. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's scary, I think, for people to think about, but um, but it is true. Um, so I, I think if people are interested in the bereavement field, I think number one to understand that most colleges do not do not, and I know you know this, Gloria, do not offer a course on death. And so um, what you have to do is find ways to um, not only. Uh, find some books out there, but also um, if a workshop comes to town on grief and loss, if you have, you know, we all hear a physician heal thyself, and if you have your own issues relating to grief and loss, it's important that you work on those before you can jump out and help other people. Um, there are, uh, for many people then, they, they move into uh, getting an undergraduate degree in psychology or a re- related field, and then they go on and get a master's degree in in counseling or family therapy, and then within that, then they're often able to specialize and, and find a graduate class or, in some rare cases, like here at Highline, an undergraduate class on grief and loss. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, getting on a website and, uh, you know, pulling up what college courses are offered out there can be real helpful and, 
and taking a taking a college class. You know, I'm obviously biased because I'm into my 29th year, but it is uh, uh, can be very uh, very much life changing because it really forces you to look at books and um, and to do homework and, and look at research. There's some very interesting research. Yes, yes. You know, there are a lot of very talented people in the field who have done a lot of very good research on um, on issues. Last year, I gave a talk at um, at a conference where I gave my results of looking at long-term um, bereaved parents, parents whose child had died uh, between five and ten years prior to that, and and I looked at what words they were, uh, they used and didn't use, and they didn't use words like heal and recover and getting over it and moving on and things like that because, uh, you know, you never get over the death of a child. You, you have to adjust to it and deal with it, but, but getting over it is, was not part of their vocabulary. But... Um, you know, the, there are um, there's certainly a need out there for people who you know at times have to sit down face to face with a counselor. A group is fine, but some for some people they you know they need that one on one, and and being able to um, offer that uh, to a community is wonderful. And be, having had the experience, um, you know, is you can work in the field without the experience, and you can work in it with the experience. Yes. It doesn't matter. It's the kind of person you are. You know, I was a, a therapist before my son was killed, and um, people there were some people who didn't think I should stay in the field, and I actually was in the field of grief and loss. I uh, did my dissertation on hospice work uh, because I was a nurse, and there were people who really didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to be doing this work. Wow. So, um, you know, so as I say, it, it depends on the individual, and yeah. you shouldn't stop um, from considering this as a career. Or if you've been uh, bereaved, I think three years, you can start a compassionate friends group, and there's also the Dougie Center yes. uh, model where working with all sorts of bereaved people. So there's uh, wonderful things to do for a service in the field. So um, what talk about uh, bereavement in general, Bob. Do, do, before we close the show, is there something else you want to say about it, or should we just talk about um, helping people who are in bereavement? Well, I think, um, well, let me give another couple examples for guilt. I think people are um, certainly in need of, what, you know, what else is out there. I think um, a helpful one to think about is to sit down and, you know, put together all the memories that they have of their child. You know, mm. for some people, even if they have a baby uh, who died, that, you know, you sit down and you think of all of the little things that you did, you know, for your child and with your child and, and their smiles and the places that you took your child and the things that you did and, uh, I think at times we often, it's so easy to focus on what we did wrong and what we failed to do and when we yelled at our child and when we were upset and so on. And, and you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of memories and things that we've done over the years. And um, and also sometimes uh, when we're, uh, uh, after a child dies, we we look at pictures, which is wonderful, but, but we need to be aware that other people have taken pictures of our child as well. And so sometimes just putting out a call and saying, um, you know, does anyone else have pictures out there that you can, you know, get those pictures and put together, you know, a memory album mm-hmm. and, and uh, using that to really feel like, you know, I, I did a lot of good things as a parent, as a, as a brother, as a sister, as, as a grandparent. And, um, and, you know, I am a good person. And, yes, I'm... And uh, focusing on the happy. Exactly. Happy thing. That's one nice thing. How would a person know when they need to go into therapy, or, or would, that would you would recommend that they go to a counselor? Because I was thinking what you're saying is something a counselor can bring out in people. Yeah. Yeah. I 
I think when a when a person's anger, like I mentioned before, is spilled over to other people, and when it when it's beginning to take over their life, when they're uh, when they've you know quit their job, when they've quit church, when they've quit social activities, when they've shut out friends, and uh, you know sometimes that occurs during the first several months and so on after a death, but as that continues on, um, and and a support group isn't helping, and their church uh, or their faith isn't helping, then then I think they need to consider seeking out. Uh, someone who's going to be able to help, help uh, okay. hold up a mirror to them. I, I love that, hold up a mirror. So if you need to have a mirror held up, think about uh, getting some professional help. Well, it's time to close our show, and I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bob Bauer. You are fantastic, and you do so much in the field of grief and loss, and very much appreciate it. And I hope that you will email me or Bob about getting some of his books because they're great and deal with, dealing with your coping with anger and guilt. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 